All right. Uh, first John, second John, third John, now done. Uh, so let's bump ahead to the letter of St. Jude. Uh, if, you have a, if you have a pew edition, which is the red one, should be uh, right before, you know, page 1025, 26, 27, someplace in there. Remember, it's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and then Revelation, okay? 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. So Jude is sort of, uh, he's the buffer between the three letters of John and then John's great uh, vision, John the seer. Everybody okay? I was just, yeah. That's great. I mean, here's the thing. One is, he says, this is, a, this is a secret. Nobody knows when the world's going to... And then he says, but I know it. I'm like, how do you know the secret? One... We engineers are powerful. Ah, yes, I guess you are. <laughs> it's also interesting that he says, uh, he says he knows the date when the world will end, and yet Jesus says not even the Son of Man knows. Um, yeah, you're going to look pretty foolish come Sunday. Have you, ever seen, have you ever seen the DuPage Fairground when they have the big summer festival and they always put up the date and they just paint over it and put a new date up? It's exactly what's going to happen with the, with the end of the world. That's exactly what's going to happen. Kirby! Okay, I'm glad, that, I'm glad they're all paying attention right now. Jan, if I was in city government, what would I do? Like pound the gavel? Okay, here we go, here we go. Come on now. Come on now. Man, it's like, this is like the last day of class at school. Thank you. I would just like to say a couple things. Uh, first of all, thanks to Kirby for showing back up. That was very nice of you to come to the last day of class. I know. Did you all know that the show choir competition, Wheat Warrenville South won? Hey, hey. And there is no bonus pool this year at St. John, but if there was, I would have had it because I voted 42 times yesterday for Lane Show Choir. Um, 23,000 votes. I didn't know there were 23,000 people who watch show choirs, but apparently there are. It's, yeah. the, line of, the line of the year was when Lane said, they said to her, when they interviewed her, why do you do this? Well, my mom thought I'd be good at it. <laughs> so the question is, who's really into show choir, mom or Lane? Okay. God bless them. I'm glad they won. Although I am convinced you heard what happened at Wheaton Warrenville South. I guess all the teachers went to every computer in the building and voted because every computer could only vote once. And I think it's a conspiracy because one of the schools was in the inner city and probably doesn't have many computers. So at the end of the day, Wheaton Warrenville South probably had three or 400 more votes just because they have more computers. And they said, yeah, and they said, yeah, and they said they only won by 200 votes, but I'd like a recount. Um, no, good job. It was... It was great. I got up at 6.30 to watch the lecture, to watch the win. So, for the win, Wheaton Warrenville South. Okay, letter of St. Jude. Um, do you know anything about St. Jude besides St. Jude Children's Hospital? Okay, now you're cheating because you're reading out of the Bible. I know I did. I was expecting you to close your Bibles up. Okay, so um, it, this is not an open book exam. Although, for those of you who are just coming back to class for the first time in a number of weeks, for you it is open book. I love you, Kirby. Uh, so what do you know about St. Jude? Yeah, what did you servant? Now you took all my thunder right away. 
Let's kind of try to build up to that. Servant. Servant, brother of, what does it say? Brother of James. Uh, yeah, patron, saint of causes. Now, why is that? Why is he the patron saint of lost causes? Yes, Mary. Good. Although, can I say one thing before you say that? Who went on the joy group trip yesterday? Guess where they went? Where did they go? The Carmelite Monastery in Munster, Indiana. And what was the guy stunned at when you guys showed up? You knew Now, isn't that great? So, uh, don't blame this on your Catholicism days. This is straight Luther. But go ahead. Why is he, why is he the patron saint of lost causes? Yep, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. No, it wasn't wrong at all. What you said was the effect of him being the patron saint. So because he's the patron saint, you often prayed to him if you had lost causes. Cancer, uh, chronic illness, um, you know, abandoned. Pick your thing. Whatever you consider to be a lost cause, you could pray to him. For you? <laughs> For you to get married? <laughs> Everybody can define their own lost causes the way they'd like. But now think about this. Why would he be why not why not Saint Peter? Why not Saint Paul? Why not Saint Bartholomew? Why Saint Jude? Okay? I no, there's more reason about what's his name? Yeah, who betrayed Jesus? Judas. In the Greek, his name is also Judas. He's the patron saint of lost causes. It's been said, this is the way the church tells it, you know, and Tradition matters. Uh, it's been said that he received his name either relatively close to the time or relatively close to the time after the betrayal of Christ. He was sort of the, he wasn't the replacement, Matthias was. But his name was to reflect the idea that there are lost causes, but lost causes can still be redeemed. Okay? So he receives the name Jude because he's the patron saint of lost causes. Judas, of course, is the one everybody thinks is an absolute lost cause. Um, but you don't know that for certain, okay? So Jude, a servant in the Greek, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, who else was also, who was James the brother of? Yes, exactly. James was the brother of Jesus. Now, of course, this doesn't necessarily mean biological brother. So he's the brother of James, and James equals brother of of Jesus. So, logically, if A equals B and B equals C, then that means Jude is the brother of Jesus. Jude is the brother of James. James is the brother of Jesus. Jude is the brother of Jesus. We're very happy to see your wife came back to class today. I know. <laughs> Cleaned the car and never came back. <laughs> That's right. I told her if there was a bonus pool, I would have had it all because I voted 47 times. I had Crow go drag all the computers up from the basement. We plugged them all in and voted. That's exactly right. So Jude is the patron saint of lost causes because his name is that of Judas. Okay? He's also the brother of James, who is the brother of Jesus. So Jude is the brother of Jesus. However, 
as the Lutheran confessions say of Mary, what do they say? In Latin? Semper Virgo. Forever virgin. That's what the confessions say. So at some point, you know, you can sort of debate and say, I don't believe that or no God could work like that. But if you're a Lutheran, this is what you subscribe to. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So in the scriptures, brother, Adelphoi, can mean anything from biological blood brother to first cousin to, frankly, kinsmen, friends. Um, if you ever travel to, like, third world countries, what do you notice? I, I once had a taxi driver from Haiti. Great guy. His wife was a doctor from America. He was from Haiti, moved here. He picked me up at a, at a hotel in, um, where was I? Baltimore, given a paper there. And he said, uh, in Haiti, we make dinner for our family, and we make dinner for all the neighbors. Why? Because those are my brothers and sisters. Now, they're not biological brothers, but at the core of his being, he believes them to be brothers. So this is not, this is not as easy as saying, oh, yeah, Mary had seven kids, and James was one of them, and Jude was one of them, and they all played with Jesus on the floor around the fireplace. It's not that easy. Could it be? Yeah, it could be. Um, but the witness of history says something different. So Jude, a slave of Jesus, brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And the language there of multiplied is like when, uh, when St. Paul says, where sin increases, grace multiplies all the more. So may this be multiplied unto you. If you, you know, addition is sort of easy. It's sort of this for that. But multiplication sort of rises exponentially. That's the way he talks about mercy and peace and love. Now, if you were to describe mercy and peace and love, what would you say? Because we sort of just read through these and say, oh, yeah, mercy, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. Isn't that nice? What do they mean, though, when he says mercy, peace, and love? What are these? They're very different things. What's mercy? Good, so they're all gifts. So gifts of Christ. What else? Uh, yeah, so all of these bring healing. But technically, what is mercy? How is, well, let me ask you this. How is it different than justice? Good, that's a good Lutheran answer. Uh, mercy would be um, uh, sort of, uh, mercy would be giving you what you don't deserve. Yeah, so gift, um, don't deserve. Because justice, if Rod Blagojevich goes to prison, he gets justice. What does that mean? He gets what he deserves, right? If the judge shows mercy, that doesn't mean he didn't do it. What it means is he's not going to suffer the consequences, okay? How about peace? If you were a Jew, this would be very easy for you. Irene is the word for peace. What does it mean? If you have peace in the world, or, or as it says around the time of Jesus, there was peace in the Roman world. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, I don't actually know what serenity means. I, when I think of serenity, I think of getting a massage at Massage Envy. The music in the background. No, I'm just 39 bucks if it's your first time. Good. Order. Calm. 
Ah, good. No worries, good. I'm, I'm leading him to that point, man. I'm leading him there. You want to disagree with all that? Okay. You can start your own Bible study next week. Why do you want to disagree with all that? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. You do have a, you do have a lovely little world that doesn't sort of exist. Oh. Are you? Well, never mind. <laughs> Keep going. Ding, ding, ding. Round one. Here we go. Now everybody pounce on it. I don't actually believe that, but if you could explain to me otherwise, I'll believe you. Yeah. 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 I, I, here's the thing. You're exactly right. Part of this is you can have, um, in, our, in our mortal life, you can have some fear and some peace, right? Someone gets the diagnosis that they're not doing so well. There's fear of what? If you get a bad diagnosis from a doctor, fear of death, fear of loss of family. Yeah, fear of unknown. Nobody knows what it is to die. All these things. And yet, you can still say, um, but I entrust myself to the one who judges justly. So Christ, uh, Christ, will, Christ will do it. Christ will do what he does best. And so you do have this sort of... Um, you do sort of have this, this, this idea of fear and peace can be at war with, within you. This is what Luther would call being a sinner and a saint. But we're just talking about peace for right now. And ideally, and I know we're not in an ideal world, but there was at one time in an ideal world, what was peace in the ideal world? These things, serenity, order, calm, no worries. Yes, good. It was Eden. In fact, all these things are Eden. Okay? Now, what about love? Makes my heart warm just saying it. Good. Love is action. And uh, I wonder what he... Oh, yeah, he uses agape. So action equals agape love. And we talked about this over and over again. Agape is different than eros, which is sort of sensual. It's also than, um, you know... Uh, Philios, or, or Philadelphia, as you know it, which is friendship. Okay? This is, agape love is self-sacrificing. And I would propose to you that true self-sacrifice involves action. Yes? Yeah? Good. Good. Uh, there's a reason he orders them this way. He doesn't say love, peace, and mercy. It, let me ask you, I'll ask you a question back. In, according to the Lutheran faith, and frankly, according to the biblical doctrine, what's the, way, what's the way Christians always operate? Who makes the first move? Yeah, so the Lord makes the first move. To you, yes, good. Good, so he shows you mercy, you have peace, and then what do you do? You love. See how this works? This is the classic biblical way the Lord operates with people, which is Jesus shows you mercy, you then have peace, and if you live a life of peace, you're moved to love. This is why the most beautiful prayer in the entire liturgy is the post-communion collect. 
strengthen us in true faith toward thee and in fervent agape towards one another. You can't say, I've just had the Eucharist, which what? Shows you mercy and gives you peace, and then walk out and tell a lie about your neighbor. You can't do it. Because what's happened? If you tell a lie about your neighbor, you're not loving him, which means the peace hasn't settled in, which means you didn't really receive the mercy. And remember, the Eucharist is black and white. There's no gray spot. So if you didn't receive the mercy, what did you receive? Condemnation. This is St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Some of you eat and drink this to your judgment, right? Damnation, yeah. Right? Okay? So you're exactly right. Why does he say it this way? Because that's the way the Lord operates. If he would have said, love, peace, and mercy be with you, then what would, who, would be, who would make the first move? You. Okay? So, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Not just added up, but may be, become so expon- exponential, you can't even count it. Beloved. Now, he goes into a whole rant here. 13 verses about false teachers. And remember, oh, I should say this. We didn't say this at the beginning. What was Jude's official title? What was his vocation? He was an apostle. Exactly. Servant of Christ, but his, his task in the church, he had an office in the church, was apostle, which you, off, which you also know from Acts 1 is the word for bishop, episkopos. So Jude was an apostle. He was a bishop, the same way St. John was a bishop. So when he writes this, he's writing as a bishop to his church. Beloved, my congregations, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I wanted to write a nice Christmas letter to you. I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, you have this strange phrase, the faith. And this is all over. It's in, uh, I wrote down a couple instances where it's at. It's in Romans 6. It's also in 1 Timothy where he says, where St. Paul says to Timothy, don't neglect the deposit of the faith. Now, how would you describe the faith? Uh, Let me ask you a different question, then you can have a little more fun with it. In Wheaton, how would you describe the faith? Is the faith about you or about someone else? Yeah, okay, so we'll put Wheaton here, and I'm going to write it all the way out so in case there's any Wheaton, you know, spies, they're not going to know what we're talking about, okay? So in Wheaton, it's about you. So who's saying? Yeah, so you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. What? Good, yes, good. So faith is always about strength, and strength very quickly goes to competition, and public relations, PR. And strength, uh, very quickly also, if you have a bad day, goes to um, depression. Depression, yeah. If your, faith, if your faith sinks one day, what do you say? I must not have enough. Yeah, depression. And I don't mean clinical. I'm just saying natural Christian depression. You know, you have a bad day. Depression, and then what else? You always want more. And if you always want more, that brings you back to the very first point, which was it's always about you. Okay? That's the way faith is talked about in our circles. I don't mean Lutheran circles, although I would say this. Many Lutheran churches do talk this way. 
Faith is first and foremost your relationship with Christ. And you hear that said all the time. How is your personal relationship with Jesus? Here's the thing. I'm not going to say that doesn't matter, but it matters so little we should take it out of our vocabulary. The faith, the way Jude describes it, Paul describes it, and Timothy describes it, is a technical term. This does. He's not saying, I want you to contend for your personal relationship with Christ. Okay? That's not what he's saying. This is a technical term which refers to the teachings of, not Christ, but the apostles. The teaching of the apostles. That's how the faith gets handed on. This is, okay, so let me ask you this. This is so fun. This is like, well, let me ask you this. When you think of God inspiring the scriptures, because we always say the scriptures are inspired and therefore they're what? Inerrant, they're without error, and therefore the scriptures are all that matter in your life. When you think of God inspiring the scriptures, how do you think it happened? When God inspired, let's say, St. John to write the gospel, how did that happen? I can tell you how Lutherans think it happened, historically. John, write this. In the beginning was the... Wait, 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 backspace, backspace, backspace. Oh, shoot, I shouldn't have said that. Okay, let's start over, John, let's start over. In the beginning was the... Now, let's see, what can I use for this? I don't have a word for it. Okay, in the beginning was the Word. Yes, okay, that's good. Nobody will understand what that means. Now, the Word was made flesh, so it's one of two ways. Either like this, write this down, or worse yet, like this. Uh Don't worry, you don't matter, John. Wow, a freaking whole gospel. You wrote the whole thing. Isn't that great? Here's the thing. What does that do to the gospel writer? He becomes a tool, a robot. A monkey could write it. That's not the way God inspired the scriptures. How did God inspire the scriptures? What he did was he called 12 apostles. He said, I'm going to send you to seminary for three years. You spend some time with me. And when I'm dead, write down what you heard and saw. Inspiration, the fact that they write books that are inspired, doesn't come from the fact that God spoke into their ear or moved their hands. It comes from the fact that they studied under Jesus. And after Jesus is dead and gone, they write down what they heard and saw. And guess what? Because they were with Jesus, what they wrote, even though he's long gone, is inspired. This is their teaching. Exactly. It'll all be the same thing. It's like reading a bad story over and over again, right? But the Lord's not boring. So what he does is he he brings the apostles into his care. They write their own gospels. They write their own epistles. And that then, because of their relationship to Jesus, means that they're inspired. So then when the apostle says, "Don't uh, you need to contend for the faith, what he's referring to is all the things the apostles have written and taught. We, we don't have a sense of what it means to be apostolic in our own church. Not completely. Because what happens is, we often think these apostles were inspired, somebody spoke into their ear, they wrote this stuff down, and the apostle is insignificant. What matters is the gospel. What he wrote, because God inspired that. Here's the thing, the apostle is utterly significant. He's the one who comes up with the data. What does it say at the beginning of Luke? I didn't quite know what to write, so I went and did some research. I went and talked to probably Mary. 
I talked to this guy, I talked to that guy, I've got all my data, because I'm not going to lie to you, and I wrote it all down, and here's your gospel, and guess what? It's inspired and without error. Okay? So the faith is the teaching of the apostles. And I would tell you this too. Remember what St. John says in his gospel? He says near the end, right at the end maybe. There's so many other things I could write, but there aren't enough books in the world to hold everything that I could write. Which means what? There's so many other things the apostle wishes he could tell us, but he can't because he doesn't have the space. That doesn't mean that just because he didn't get it written down in a book, it's not important or not inspired. So when the apostle, John, sat down with Polycarp, remember he was Polycarp's instructor and said to Polycarp, hey, Polycarp, I didn't have enough time to write all this down, but I'm an old man, I'm about to die. Here's all the things you need to know about Jesus which we didn't get to write down. And then Polycarp trains up Irenaeus and he says to Irenaeus, here are all the things John told me about. Guess what? Those things are inspired and important because they come from John. Just because they didn't write them down doesn't mean it's not important. And so when Jude says here, contend for the faith, what he's saying is contend for the teaching of the apostles, which is broader than what's in this book. Okay? Make sense? All right. So... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, that's great, how'd you not notice them, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They, In some sense, they had it coming. That doesn't mean the Lord predestined them this way. It's not like he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to condemn some of these, but guess what? He knew it was coming. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, that's, that's interesting on two levels. One, he recounts the Egypt story, but who does he say saved the Egyptians? Saved the people in the land of Egypt? Jesus! And that's, that's amazing that he says that the person of Christ saved the Israelites. Not God, not the Holy Spirit, not an angel of the Lord. Jesus. And yet, with the water of the Red Sea, he destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's Satan and all the fallen angels. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, partly this is important because we think of examples in the Christian life as what? If you say, find a person to be your example, what are they? They're usually good. Exactly. So here's the thing. Example doesn't just mean follow after them. You should find good examples. This is the Lutheran Confessions on Saints. Good examples to follow and bad examples to not follow. I don't, and so you should say to your kids, grow up and be like that person, but you probably shouldn't grow up and be like that person. This isn't being mean. This is just the way the church works. Say that again. 
your sign. Oh, I thought you meant like your horoscope. I'm like, that's interesting. Okay, get it all out. Here's the place. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. So partly, now think about this, this as a Christian. What do you need to figure this out? If you're a Christian and you're going to tell your kids who to follow, you also need some discernment to know good from bad, right? And part of the trouble is we get these two things mixed up. And so we say to our kids, be like that guy, follow him, and it ends up being not so good, or that woman ends up being not so good. But he says, use this as an example. Verse 8. Because we're getting to the good stuff. I'm skimming through this because the good stuff starts at verse 12. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. There's a lot there. But what do you know about dreams? Are dreams reality? No. Dreams are not reality. I read a whole thing. Well, that's another story. Sorry, I have so much to tell you, and it's the last week. Uh, dreams are not reality, and sometimes we confuse our own self-perception with objective reality. I mean, I can tell you I think I'm anything, or I had a dream about this, and the rest of the world would know it's not true. I mean, I could say, I'm a black man, and you'd look at me and say, yeah, yeah right, <laughs> exactly. But if I, I, can so, I can convince myself of my own self-perceptions. What happened in the context of Judas, they'd convince themselves of their own dreams, their own aspirations. And what do they do? They defile the flesh. They reject authority. And they blaspheme the glorious ones, the saints, the Christians. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I, I, I'm always surprised at how little we talk about St. Michael. Um, St. Michael is a huge saint in the church. September 29th is St. Michael and All Angels Day. And St. Michael, remember, battled with Satan. This is from the book of Daniel. And, uh, and then he does. He, he doesn't just pronounce this judgment like, I'm going to destroy you, but he says, the Lord rebuke you. At the end of the day, chastisement and mercy both belong to God. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So they make fun of what they don't get. And yet, whatever they get instinctively, like an animal, that's what they relish in. That's what they cherish. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. Cain, of course, killed Abel. And abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast you, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Now stop right there. There are two important words there: blemishes and love feasts. Now, in some sense, it's interesting that he uses the word love feast because he is talking about how they, how they sort of defiled themselves with their own bodies. But he's talking about something very different. He says here, blemishes and love, agape, feasts. Okay? 
Now first, blemishes. What do you think of when you hear the word blemish? Zits. <laughs> okay, zits, that could be one. Skin, yes, yeah, skin. Skin, scar, bad spot. That's good. Now we're getting somewhere. Imperfection. Yes. Unacceptable as sacrifice. Now you're getting somewhere. The Greek word, yeah. Exactly. Yep. Good. Exactly right. This word for blemishes appears one time in the New Testament, and it's right here. St. Paul uses a similar word, which is then translated as blemish, spot, stain, that sort of thing, which is why it translates it this way here. We think of, you know, skin, scar, bad spot, imperfection. The literal of the Greek word is reef. Oop, not reefer, sorry. Reef. I know. It's that back table. They've all been to Amsterdam once. Okay. So reef. Now what do you know about what do you know about a reef? Yeah. So here's the thing. So here's the water line. Here's the boat. Disney cruise. Big smiley face. Okay. There's the boat. And the reef, the boat goes down like this. The reef is like this. Right? At some point, the boat might hit the reef. Now, the reef is unseen, but what will it do to the boat? Destroy the boat. Now, remember, what's the church called in the scriptures? The ark, a ship. This is why if you go down to college church, I don't know if you know this, but college church is designed to look like a ship. So they have all the portholes at the top. I didn't know that until about four years ago. You wouldn't notice it from the street, but drive by sometime and look at all the portholes. The church is the ark. But there are people who are like the reef. And what happens when the reef hits the boat, it can destroy the boat. Now, think about that. Think about what he just said about all these people who tell lies and, and uh, don't believe objective truth and all these. How do they become like the reef in the church? What happens? They operate below the surface. Is it darker light down there? Dark. What else? Really? I didn't know that. Interesting. So that's actually that's a great theology. When you hit the reef, when the reef gets or when the reef hits you, not only does it hurt the church, but what was down here in the dark dies. Interesting. There's a whole sermon there. What else do you know about the reef? Yeah, there could be pretty fish. Say that again? Good. It continues to grow on itself. It feeds off itself. Yeah, exactly. So the reef then continues, and in some sense, the reef multiplies um, at a faster rate than even ships can be sort of secured. So all of that is the context then of what he's saying. These people are like the reef. They come up and they try to destroy the boat. When they destroy the boat, they themselves will die. But so long as they're not killed, what happens? They continue to reproduce. Yeah. Right. Well, remember I said this is the only place it appears, this word appears in the New Testament. The closest word to it is from St. Paul, where it actually does mean blemishes. 
but the literal reading of this Greek word is reap. So somebody was sloppy in their translation. This is why when people say, well, I've read lots of translations and this is what it says, here's the thing, I don't care what translations you've read. Because you could write a translation, I could write a translation, my dog could write a translation. Translations are, they're meaningless. You try to find the best one, but at the end of the day, unless you go back to the Greek word, I mean, there are plenty of examples of this. Um, there, are just, there are plenty of examples, especially, especially as it relates to the ministry and to, to the apostles. There are plenty of examples where things get skewed a bit, and what people often do is they say, well, I've got the living translation. This must be it. That's no better than, you know, that doesn't matter. The Greek is what matters. Yeah. I'll read you the note in this text. This is from a Greek scholar. The Greek word is spilis, a noun used to mean stain or submerged rock. It appears only here in the New Testament. Some hold that 2 Peter 2.13, which employs a similar word, is dependent upon Jude 12 and takes it to mean stain. So that's how you get stain in this text. However, Jude is comparing his opponents to an offshore reef that was hazardous to ships coming into port because it was hidden just below the surface of the sea. Understood in this way, the heretical teachers infiltrating Christian communities were an unseen danger to the faith of unsuspecting believers. Okay? It does, actually. Because how you get stain out of that, it, it doesn't seem like it has enough force. But So these reefs... Yeah, they, well, okay. That's true. Yeah, that's right. So these are reefs on your love feast. And the love feast there is, uh, is a synonym for what? The Eucharist. Remember what the early Christians called the Eucharist? The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper sometimes, but they also called it an agape meal, a love meal, right? A love feast. So these folks are blemishes. They're reefs on your love feast as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. So what happens? So let's just play this out in real time then in the context of Jude. They're having a Eucharist, because this is a sermon. They're having a Eucharist. These people who are not only heretics, but also um, they're trying to destroy the church, what happens? They participate in the Eucharist without fear, looking after themselves. Now what would be the reason a heretic would go to the Eucharist? looks like everybody else, or very practically, he just might be curious or hungry or thirsty. Remember? I mean, this, or he might think he's not a heretic, yeah. That might be part of it. You ever met somebody who doesn't think they're a heretic but really are? Yeah, just read the early church fathers. Yes, exactly. People who will go to church tomorrow just in case the Lord's returning. I wonder if Saturday night service will be packed tomorrow night. Back, what time is it supposed to happen? Right as I finish the announcements. This is going to be great. I'm going to have a long pause before the start of the service just to see if it happens. As someone said to me, yeah, right. As someone said, as someone said on Facebook this morning, they said, for all of you who believe it's going to happen, I'm happy to take all your possessions. I'll take cash donations. Here's the thing. If you think it's going to happen, leave all your money to me, Okay. I mean, partly what you want to say to the guy is, you know what happens in the Old Testament when prophets get it wrong? 
Tomorrow may be his last day, but waterless clouds slept al- swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. So he gives you three images there. Remember, he says, oh, you're, you're, this is James, this is Peter. You're swept along by the winds of desire. They push you here, they push you there. That's how the clouds are. That's what these waterless clouds are. Fruit trees in late autumn. What happens then? Fruitless trees in late autumn. Everything's bad stuff. Twice dead, uprooted. So they've been pulled up from the ground. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Isn't that great? Wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. That's, I mean, the imagery here, this is a, if you can imagine this is a sermon, that's pretty powerful. It does sound like hell. Exactly. Exactly right. Not knowing where to go. Remember, Jesus says, I'm the way. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Get it? They're ungodly. (laughs) And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So you get the point. The repetition of ungodly means they are ungodly. Good. These are grumblers. That's interesting. What does it mean? They're always... Everything is bad. Everything is bad. There's never, you ever met somebody who they can never say a positive thing? Oh, wears me out. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. <laughs> they are loudmouth boasters. I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. And favoritism is not what? It's not fair. It's anti-justice. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice what he says. He doesn't say, remember the predictions of Jesus. Remember the predictions of the apostles. The apostles bear the same authority as Christ, and the apostles' successors bear the same authority as Christ. There's a long line from Jesus and Peter all the way down to today. Remember the predictions of the apostles. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Meaning, it's not all been revealed just yet. And have mercy on those who doubt. And doubting is very different than what he's just described up above. Grumblers, malcontents, uh, loudmouth boasters, those who show favoritism. That's not the same as doubting. Doubting are people who have been touched by those evil people listed above. So you can't treat someone who's been touched by evil the same way you would treat someone who is the source of evil. Okay? And that's sometimes sometimes what we struggle with. We, We treat people who have touched evil the same way as people who are the source of evil. They're very different. Go ahead. Yeah, you are. That's why we would. That's why we would say. That's why he says to the church here, uh, show. Where does it say? Have mercy on those who doubt. So that would be all of us. There are some people though 
who are so far, who have touched evil so much that it's actually become a part of them. This is what we talk about almost every week with uh, this is Christ. You've been baptized into Christ, Romans 6. But what happens? You can actually step just outside. So talking about people here. He's not talking about people here. Not even talking about people really right there. He's talking about people out here. That's right. Uh, that's good. Although Jesus, uh, and he's not asking you to judge. Who does he say to listen to? No, not to him. The apostles. The task of the apostle has been to judge the church. This is all over. I gave it to the student Sunday morning Bible study, about six verses. So you're right. Your job is not to judge. So any, if you ever read, if you ever see a church where they say, hey, everybody in the church should, should be involved in excommunication, what does that show you? They haven't read the text. Excommunication, judgment, uh, acknowledging evil, calling things from darkness to light, belongs first and foremost to the apostles and their successors. Okay? And here's the other thing. At some point, uh, when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he also didn't say put blinders on and act like nothing's going on. Judging is very different than discerning. Judging is saying, you're a bad person because you did this. Discerning is saying, that's not good for me, and you're not good for me, and so I'm going to be involved in this. Okay? Uh, where do you see that? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, you're fear, and you're fearful that someone might fall into evil or might be overcome by evil. Remember, we've talked, I mean, here's the thing, we've talked about this 30 times down here, which is, it's very different to say someone is overcome by evil and someone has touched evil. The touching evil folks need to be shown mercy. The overcome by evil folks, as he said, they're a blemish on your love feast. And if they're a blemish on the love feast, what does that mean? They affect everyone involved. And so what's best for the church and for them is to be removed from the love feast. But it's not been given to every Christian to remove someone from the love feast. This is why he says, listen to the teachings of the apostles. And to have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to, sh to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There's some people that have sort of, you know, they're, they're, these are the types of folks that would say, I can't wear white on my wedding day. You get it? These are people who have done things that are forgivable, but still they're, they're stained by this. Everybody is stained by sin, but some sins are of the flesh. Now, it gets interesting here in the last nine minutes. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So at some point, Jesus is going to present you blameless. But you've already discussed, I mean, you've told me the whole time, what's your life like now? Is it blameless? No. So at some point, and this is why he says just a few verses before, uh, save others by snatching them out of the fire. You know fire is good for a couple things. One is, what can fire do? It can kill, but it can also purify. Okay? So Jesus will need to make you blameless. He's going to let you, he's going to let you be purified just enough that you're not killed, but then when you enter eternal paradise, what happens? You're completely clean.
clean. This is, this is what St. Paul says when he says, everything you do will be tested with fire, right? With fire. And this is why Jesus says in the Gospels, some things can be forgiven now, some things can't be forgiven now, and some things can't even be forgiven in the life to come. So when, when you get to the life to come, Jesus will have to do some cleanup work, okay? It's not like he just snaps his fingers. This is not how Jesus works. He doesn't just snap his fingers and say, Jan, you're clean, go on in. No, he says, Jan, I love you, I died for you, I've forgiven you over and over again. You still got a couple spots I got to clean up. It's going to take me just a minute. Let me get, okay. Big car wash. Okay, go on in now. Right? So it's, and we're not talking about hell. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is Jesus needs to clean us up. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling, Jesus, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Imagine what happens when you bring your, 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 your newborn child out to show the family. What's that like? It's great. You're showing off your blameless child. That's exactly what Jesus does. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Those are all kingly, priestly terms. Before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Before all time is, you know, before the world began. Now is now, and forever. Glory be to the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Okay? You have questions about that? Jan. Yeah. You know where this comes from? You'll get a charge out of this. This prophecy is recorded in the Apocrypha. Yeah. It's recorded in First Enoch. First Enoch is an apocryphal book. Don't get, don't get too nervous here. Remember Luther, it's great. Luther writes an introduction to all the books of the Bible, including the books of the Apocrypha. And in Luther's German Bible, it did include the Apocrypha. If you read like a New English version, which is from you know, England, those sorts of versions, many will include the Apocrypha. Luther didn't believe the, Apocry- the Apocrypha was inspired. Why? Because the people who wrote them weren't apostles. See how this all works out? So, but he never said don't read them. In fact, he said they're very, very good to read, and in fact, they can instruct you in the Christian faith. This reference to a prophecy by Enoch is found in 1 Enoch. So 1 Enoch, of course, appeared before St. Jude. And it's interesting that he's building his case using an apocryphal book. Okay? How are you feeling, Mary? Are you tired? I hope it's all good. Everybody okay? I mean, that, that's not a very eventful ending. I wish it was more hopeful than saying, you know, you're like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Woe to you! <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing. Now you got a whole summer to... Now you got a whole summer to screw it up! Okay! <laughs> now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yeah, it won't take a whole summer. I'm going to screw this thing up by noon. I can feel it coming. Um... Before 6 o'clock tomorrow. That's exactly right. I, oh, boy. That would be... As someone said to me, I wouldn't be too upset if it actually happened. I'm like, hey, me either. That'd be great. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't. I may just not show up for... I'm supposed to preach tomorrow. I'll just not show up and say I was waiting for the second coming. Hey, do it without me. You have any other questions? Yeah. Well, here's what the note says, and this is helpful. It's always helpful when somebody's done the background work for you. 
Woe to them is often a preface to prophetic oracles of judgment. Makes sense. Um, it names three people here, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. It says here, three infamous sinners of the Old Testament. Cain was the first to murder in the Bible. Makes sense. Balaam tried to curse Israel, Numbers 22 to 24. And later, Balaam counseled the women of Moab to, to seduce Israel into sin. What kind of seduction was that? Same sensuality stuff he's just talked about. Korah headed a rebellion against the authority of the Israelite priesthood and was consumed in God's wrath. So Korah is, in some sense, the most interesting because Korah rebelled against the priesthood, not just against the priesthood, against the authority of the priesthood. And what happened to, what happened to Korah? Off with your head, yeah. Um, so it says here, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. I wonder if that has any connection to Balaam's ass. I'm being serious. Because it's an unreasoning animal. and I know, that's the most interesting. I mean, it's almost like this is very ironic here. The donkey saves him, but you don't think of a donkey as being a reasoning animal, right? But the donkey ends up saving him, and he calls him right before he talks about Balaam, unreasoning animals. That's just interesting. Woe to them. So now here comes the prophetic judgment. For they walked in the way of Cain, murdered, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They tried to bring the people of Israel to their side, not to the Lord's side, and perished in Korah's rebellion. How did they do that? How did the people in Korah perish? They usurped the authority of the priesthood. How did the people here perish, Korah's rebellion? Usurped the authority of the priesthood. Remember, that's why he says... Uh, he talked about his own authority here a few minutes ago, but I can't remember the verse. So it was threefold. Got a lot up here. So like Cain, they killed. Who knows if that's spiritual or physical? I don't know. Uh, like Balaam, B-A-A. A-A-L-A-M, something like that. Like Balaam, they tried to turn, jeez, I'm sorry, turn the folks against God. And how did they do that? Like Korah, they usurped the authority of the apostles. Make sense? So like Cain, they killed the people. How did they do it? They tried to turn the folks against God. And the easiest way to turn folks against God is to try to usurp the authority of your apostle, of your pastor. This is exactly what they did. And then it says here, these are reefs on your love feast. So basically, if you... So now play this out in the last two minutes. If you have folks like this at the love feast, what does it do to the love feast? Destroys it. Destroys it. Right. And these are important things. I mean, we can't just sort of glance over usurping the authority, turning the folks, or trying to kill. This is precisely what they tried to do. And then when they infiltrated the Eucharist, they brought all their baggage to the Eucharist, which then stained everybody else. Okay? We've often talked about this. At the Eucharist, you don't just share forgiveness with folks. This isn't why you kneel across from each other. So you can say, oh, isn't that great? He's forgiven and I'm forgiven. You kneel across from each other because you can say, his sin is now my sin. My sin is now his sin. 
Same thing here. Their sin is the sin of everybody else in this congregation because they share in one meal, the Eucharistic feast. So this is why it's so important that discipline and judgment and, uh, and even, as the Lutheran confessions say, excommunication, it's so important that these things be not done in haste, but done nonetheless. Because if these people are not removed, what happens? The whole thing breaks apart. Okay, the whole thing breaks apart. And this is, and what people don't get is, in fact, you should all go read. I was just reading the other day. Someone said, uh, someone said we should talk about excommunication. Excommunication is a very good thing to talk about. Although what's so brilliant about the excommunication right is, it's all about we desperately not hate this person. We desperately love this person. It's like your kids. I mean, here's the thing. If your kids do something that's going to destroy the family, destroy themselves, destroy their reputation, if you tell them not to, is that loving them or hating them? Yeah, and here's the problem. In the church, what do we say? That's hating them. This is a family. This is why all the words in Scripture for pastors and congregations are things like servants and lords, shepherds and sheep, fathers and children. You have all these analogies, and the one that plays itself out here is father and children. If your children are doing something that's going to destroy them, and frankly destroy the rest of the family, if there's nothing done about that, you're actually not loving them. Okay? Now, we're over the time. So, uh, on that happy note, take all of that with you this summer. Um, I don't know when we start. I don't know what we'll do. But we will start, and we will do something. Um, (laughs) Make sense? Uh, Thank you. What's that? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, yeah. by the fall, by the fall, you should have a different room. So thanks for bearing with us. Um, thank, you know, so many of you have come out so many weeks, and actually it's great fun to come down here. I know Pastor Bruzek would agree. And it's, it's refreshing to come down here with so many people. It can be a little disconcerting sometimes when you come to a Bible study and two or three people show up, so it's great to have 25 or 30. It makes it all worth it. So thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for coming along. And frankly... Very, uh, it's a, it's a. Well, I'm not an emotional guy, but I would say it's a proud moment when a pastor sees how well his congregation has matured even over the course of a year. So good job to everyone. Do you have anything you want to add? No. What happened? I know. I, I was, I was gonna. Tr- okay. I, I could see it in your eyes. Like Emma says to me, you don't have to yell at me. I can see it in your eyes when you're mad. That's how I work. Like my old man, he used just to look at me like this. I knew I was done for. What dads are for. All right, let's pray. Hey, you're welcome. This is great fun. Good. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.